Welcome to National Parks Traveler, where we explore the national parks and the issues that involve them. Hi, this is Kurt Repencheck, your host at National Parks Traveler. What do you know about Isle Royale National Park? Have you ever explored this incredible island in Lake Superior? Robert Parr has, and he described his backpacking experience this past week on National Parks Traveler. We also reported on the shameful killing of a sea turtle at Biscayne National Park, the great news of golden eagle chicks spotted at Santa Monica Mountains NRA for the first time in three decades, and asked readers what they thought about electric bikes in the national parks. You can find those and other stories at nationalparkstraveler.org. In this week's show, Erica Zambello discusses the situation of Burmese pythons in Everglades National Park with a contractor whose job is to both study and remove this invasive species. We also point to some great escapes in national parks in the eastern half of the country and review Ramble On, A History of Hiking. This is Erica Zambello, and today we're looking at the Python invasion of Everglades National Park and Big Cypress National Preserve. I'm joined by Dylan Turks, Python contractor for the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. She has first-hand experience with this unique reptile invasion. Thank you so much for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. So what is your background? You know, how does somebody become a python contractor in South Florida. How did you become involved in this Everglades work? Yeah, I'd say it was a long process. Um, nothing in my background necessarily looks obviously like it would have led to where I am today because um, in my undergraduate career, I was actually studying psychology and writing. But I moved down to Miami to attend college at University of Miami. And while I was there, I started spending a lot of time out in the Everglades. And I've always loved wildlife. I've always loved those critters that are kind of a little bit less loved animals like sharks and snakes. And so finding how many amazing snakes there were in the Everglades was really, really exciting for me. So I spent a lot of time out there. And unfortunately, if you do spend a lot of time in the Everglades, inevitably you're going to run into a Burmese python at one point or another. You're going to learn about that problem. Um, And so I started interacting with people who were volunteers for the parks and did remove pythons. And that's really how I started to become involved with that. Did you just start going into the Everglades just because you love the outdoors or were these trips that your university took you on? Have you always been an outdoorsy person? Yeah, I've always been pretty outdoorsy. Um, As a kid, I loved playing outside. I wasn't as interested in um, encountering snakes in my neighborhood as a kid, but I loved watching Steve Irwin, as of course all kids of the 90s. We all do. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And so I, when I went to University of Miami, I actually, I felt a little bit overwhelmed by being in such a big city at first. And so over the weekends, I would just try to escape out into Everglades National Park. And I spent actually spent most of my time out in Big Cypress. Um, I love hiking through the swamps. And so our favorite thing to do is just drive, find a place to park and just walk off the road and see what we could find. As you mentioned, a lot of what you found uh, sometimes was Burmese pythons. So for people who are not from Florida or not familiar with the problem, can you give us some history about the Burmese python? You know, when did they arrive and why are they a problem? Yeah, well, so the first Burmese python found in the wilds of South Florida was in 1979. So um, a lot of people are familiar with this as being a more recent problem, but this has been in the works for decades. 
And there's a lot of debate as to what was the actual source of the introduction, whether it was one specific point. A lot of people point to Hurricane Andrew, which happened in 1992, and it really devastated the Homestead area. So they say that is when people who had pets, um, pet Burmese pythons, people who bred them, their facilities were destroyed and those animals escaped into the Everglades. However, we know that they were here since 1979. So um, it had already been an issue at that point. And so probably, you know, people have them as pets. You could buy them very, very easily in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. And you buy a tiny little hatchling. That's a small snake, but it grows pretty big after a year, depending on, depending on that individual, depending on how much it's eating. You could have a six or seven foot snake on your hands, and it's only going to keep growing from there. So um, a lot of people probably did end up releasing them out into the Everglades. And unfortunately, they've done a really good job of surviving. So they are a really big problem here in South Florida. One of the most well-known problems that they're causing is that, of course, to get to be a large constrictor, to get to be 16, 17, 18 feet, they're eating a lot. And what they're eating in the Everglades is our native animals, our mammals and our birds. And so there has been a decline in the incidence of mammals um, as biologists encounter them when they're driving through the park and surveying for animals. They find them a lot less often nowadays. Um, but there are some other issues that we're concerned about as well. Um, recently, a study came out through Stetson University that showed that maybe Burmese pythons are spreading some parasites into other animals. They documented parasites that were actually killing pygmy rattlesnakes that might have been introduced by Burmese pythons. And then University of Florida has also done some interesting studies into mosquitoes in South Florida. And one of the animals that surprisingly has increased since the pythons are here is rats. We have hispid cotton rats in the Everglades. And because there's a lot less medium-sized mammals that might eat those rats, their populations have gone up. So if you're a mosquito in the Everglades, what you're going to be taking blood from might be a rat and it might be a human. There's not a lot of other diversity of mammals to consume. So we end up having more of a chance that there could be spread of disease from rats onto humans as a result of that. So and those are just a few of the problems that we've identified. Who knows how big the scope of the problem could be? Yeah, that's what is always so shocking about a quote-unquote successful invasive species mm-hmm. introduction because there are so many repercussions across the food web that you just honestly can never anticipate. Yes, exactly. And so all of the younger Burmese pythons don't chow down on the rats, or is it really they are focusing on other species? I'm sure they likely do, but the rats reproduce um, a little bit more quickly than a lot of those other mammals. So they have faced a little bit less pressure. Yeah, that makes sense. I feel like not much reproduces more quickly than a rat. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. So you're a python contractor um, seasonally. What does that mean? What does it mean to be a python contractor? So what we are paid to do is we actually will survey, and I survey both in Everglades National Park, um, in Big Cypress National Preserve, and in some state-managed lands as well. Um, And so every contractor, um, they go out on their own time, and they are conducting surveys. So depending on the time of year, those animals are behaving in different ways. So surveys in the summertime might be driving around the roads late at night looking for Burmese pythons to cross the roads. During the springtime, when the water levels are lower in the Everglades, those might be walking around looking for pythons, looking for places that you think they are breeding, because at that time of year, they're not moving as often. You have to really go out to them and look for them. And so 
when we're out there, once we've identified the snake, you catch it, um, you put it in a bag, and ultimately it gets transported back to biologists. Okay, wait. So... (laughs) Uh, I have never seen a giant Burmese python, yes. but my, my imagination is certainly running wild with the images. So how does, you make it sound so easy, but you've identified this giant snake in one of your yes. surveys. How exactly do you catch it and transport it without, you know, risking yourself? Yeah, everyone has a little bit of a different tactic for how they go about that. Um, But the easiest way is um, often when you find Burmese pythons and other snakes, they are sitting in the road. They're moving very, very slowly across the road. They don't realize that there's a lot of cars traveling back and forth on that road. And so for a lot of snakes, that is a really unfortunate situation. Um, But for contractors, that's a good thing. When we find a Burmese python, it's going to be sitting across the road. Sometimes you know, they don't realize that they've necessarily crawled out of an area where they're camouflaged and they will just sit in the road and they will not move. And so you walk up to them, um, you grab them. Um, If you don't want to get bit, you need to hold them just a little bit behind the head so you have control over the head and the jaws so they can't swing around and bite you. And then you need to be careful. It is a very large constrictor. They are capable of hurting you. Um, so you wouldn't want to lift a big snake up and have it around your torso. Of course, you wouldn't want to have, have it around your neck. So, um, generally what I do is I try to get the head under control and then I keep the body low to the ground. We are given large bags. Think of just basically a really big pillowcase. Um, and so you put the snake inside of that bag. I usually like to put the body and get it down towards the bottom, hold the bag up really high, drop the head and close it really fast. And then we do double bag them because of course that snake is going to be a little bit scared, wondering why it's inside of this bag. It's going to be trying to get out. So sometimes if there is a weakness in that bag, they will poke at it and poke at it and poke at it. And after hours of being in there, they might end up getting out. So we double bag them. And then to transport them, they have to be secured inside of a locked box as well. Um, And so that is how they are carried on to the biologists. Three layers of protection. Exactly. So it's a typical day for you. You're surveying either in the car or, or the other methods you mentioned. So how many snakes are you coming across in one survey or is it not a snake every day? It's definitely not a snake every day. There are certainly times of year where it feels like it is. And then there's times of year where you feel like you've gone many, many surveys without finding one. Sometimes we talk about feeling guilty because we keep turning in surveys where we found no snakes at all. So it really depends on the time of year. Uh, I do not have, um, I don't have the number on hand right now, but it's something like 15 to 20 hours of surveying to yield one python. Okay. So it's a lot of work out there. And I'm sure this is the question that you always get asked, but what is the biggest python that you have ever successfully wrangled and taken back to the station? The biggest one I have caught was about 14 feet. And that is a very large snake, but there's people that have caught ones that are 16, 17, 18 feet. And quite honestly, once you're getting to be that size, it's amazing. Um, The presence of an animal like that increases tremendously with every foot. Yeah, that's, I'm actually, I'm not afraid of snakes. I I think snakes are really cool, but that still sounds like the stuff of nightmares. Like trying to wrangle a 14 foot snake (laughs) into a pillowcase, essentially. 
Yeah, well, and you know, there um, a lot of people are afraid coming to South Florida. Um, I do work seasonally as an education ranger at Everglades National Park, and people will come up to us and say, "Are we safe out here? We've heard that there's Burmese pythons here. Are we going to be walking down the Anhinga Trail and have pythons jumping out at us from the side?" <laughs> and really, absolutely not. <laughs> they do not eat large humans. They are just going to be sitting back. If they're there, you're honestly not going to know. They have such amazing camouflage, and so. They don't see a human as a source of food, but they're probably just going to sit there and hope you pass on by. But, you know, once you've grabbed them, they're not an aggressive animal, but they are terrified and they're going to do whatever they can to try to get away from you because they think they are being predated. They think that you're catching them and trying to eat them. So they're going to do whatever they can to get away. Um, And so they're not dangerous until you've grabbed onto them, really. Yeah, that makes sense. So to everyone visiting Everglades National Park, do not grab on to the pythons. (laughs) Exactly. And actually, so for people that are visiting the park, a lot of them wonder exactly what to do if they do see a python in the park. And people are actually not allowed to touch any of the wildlife in the park. They know that for the native animals, but I've had people say, I saw a python and I didn't know if I should grab it. I didn't know if I should bring it to you. And the answer is no, you call us. There's actually a number 1888. I've got one. Or um, if you are near where there are rangers, you can alert them and they will come on out and take care of that situation for you. We're speaking with Dylan Turks, Python contractor, and we will be right back after a few messages. Listener and reader support make National Parks Traveler possible every day of the year. If you enjoy Traveler's content, please consider a donation via nationalparkstraveler.org. RV Share provides not only an option for renters to enjoy the perks of RV travel without having to buy one, but an opportunity for owners to earn income by renting theirs out. You'll find everything from large and luxurious Class A RVs all the way to small and easy-to-tow pop-up campers. You can even use their filters to find an RV that is dog-friendly, or one that will be delivered right to your campground. Visit RVShare.com to start your search for the perfect RV rental or to list your RV. Acadia National Park is one of the 10 most popular national parks in the United States. It is also one of the smallest and most vulnerable. That's why Friends of Acadia exists. Friends of Acadia is an independent organization of passionate people inspiring those who love this magnificent park to make a real and lasting difference for Acadia, you can make a difference at friendsofacadia.org. And we're back with Dylan Turfs, Python contractor at the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation Commission. So in addition to Python contractors like yourself, occasionally in the news, um, if, you, if you live in Florida, we see talk about the Python rodeos. So mm-hmm. are, what is a Python rodeo? Well, so FWC has held two different, um, I think, month or two month long hunts where they were um, opening it up more to the general public. You still had to take a class. You still had to be trained in snake identification. Um, And so that was a way of both raising awareness of the problem and also as the problem has gone on, people have become a little bit better at at the finding the best methods for catching pythons. But for a long time, you know, we were just putting out as much effort as we could and seeing what worked. 
And so in having, I don't have those numbers with me, but they, you know, they had dozens and dozens of people that were out there looking for snakes. And um, in the month that they were out there, in the first one, I think they got less than 100. And in the second year, they ended up getting over 100. But that was hundreds or thousands of hours of labor by a bunch of different people. So um, those turned out not to be necessarily the best method for bringing back a lot of snakes. Um, but they certainly were great ways to raise awareness of the problem. A lot of people learned about it through those. Yeah, definitely. That was a, a PR explosion around. Yes, around absolutely. So um, they have people like you doing surveys um, a little bit more systematically. They occasionally have the rodeos. What else is South Florida doing about the Python problem? Or honestly, is there anything that can be done? You know, once you have an invasive species that's established, it's almost impossible to, to really eradicate them. Yeah, you're exactly right. It does at this point seem like we probably never will have any type of control method so we can get them, um, get them contained, get them eradicated. I personally don't see that ever happening. Um, however, we are learning a lot more about them. Since um, Florida Wildlife Commission contractors have been working in the park, uh, they have increased the number of pythons um, captured by 300%. So we're finding a lot of snakes and every single snake that is found is studied. They're seeing what they've eaten. Um, they are, every single snake, we have to take GPS points. So we actually have a GPS with us when we're doing those surveys. And we take a waypoint when we find a snake. And so we're trying to find out as much as we can about what they are doing here, what the best way to expend effort is, um, and what is going to produce the most, um, the most success. And the best method so far has just been having people who are trained, people who have experience, and people who are out on the ground searching for those pythons. It helps to have people that really like going out and looking for snakes because they're going to be enthusiastic about going out and doing it a whole lot more. Um, but that has been the most successful way to find them year-round. Um, USGS does a lot of other um, experimental work in the park to see exactly um, see if they can find some other solutions. And you might have heard of using Judas snakes, where you have one snake that has um, is implanted with some type of transmitter and you can send it out into the environment. And during the breeding season, where they're not moving around that much, if you have one large mature female, you probably are going to be able to find a lot of males in that area as well. Um, and so something they're working on now is actually using feminizing hormones in the male pythons and seeing if perhaps they can then trick those other males into coming over to that male. And then you're minimizing the chance that those snakes are going to you know, breed and contribute to the problem. Nice. I like it. So you're using their natural... Um, desire to breed actually exactly. against them. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's really interesting. So they're definitely trying to be as innovative as possible in just keeping the number of pythons down so that the effects on native species can be reduced. Is that is exactly? That and so the one big thing is that we'd like to keep them contained to the area where they are. They are here. They're a problem. We're probably not getting rid of them. Perhaps we can find some landscape level control that we can keep them, keep them at a minimum, allow the rest of the animals that have been impacted by them to rebound just a little bit. Um, and if people find them, 
when they're in the Everglades, when they're in South Florida, wherever you are, um, we want people to report it. So um, people visiting the Everglades really should know about that that phone number, that one eight eight eight. I've got one. Um, and then there's an app and a website called EdMaps. That's eddmaps.org. Um, early detection and distribution. So. We want, when people find them in places where they haven't been found before, we want to be able to put more people out into that area and find that snake and hopefully stop them from spreading. Um, the best method really is prevention. Once a species is established, it's very, very hard to eradicate them. So you mentioned that it's really important that we keep them contained in the area where they already exist. So are they actively spreading north? Is you know, are colder temperatures keeping them in check? Is climate change going to affect their spread? You know, what's the what's the biggest thing that's keeping them where they are right now? Honestly, those are all questions that we are waiting to figure out as well. Um, it seems like they are spreading. You know, it, in the beginning, we were finding them mostly in the eastern Everglades um, in the beginning of the problem in the 80s and 90s. But they're found all the way out in Collier County now. Um, they're found north of it. People do report finding them around Lake Okeechobee. So it seems that they they are spreading. And, you know, when you have that waterway like that, that's where a lot of those larger pythons are spreading through. They're moving through canals. Um, they're moving through the shallow waters of the Everglades. And so who knows how far they will end up traveling? Who knows how far it's possible to go? Well, I live in northwest Florida, so I hope not this far. <laughs> Absolutely. Exactly. <laughs> It does get pretty cold here in the winter, so maybe that will protect me for now. Um, yeah, well, and we also do see trends down here in South Florida. Um, believe it or not, if you've only visited South Florida in the summertime, it does get kind of cold here in the winter. Um, a lot of people are surprised by that. I know I've had visitors say that they wish they'd come when it was warmer when they'd come in January and February. And so um, in 2010, we had a really prolonged cold period where it actually impacted a lot of our native animals, like the crocodiles and the manatees. But it also impacted invasives like iguanas and like pythons. So they were found in uh, lower numbers in subsequent years after that cold front. But unfortunately, it wasn't quite enough to stop them. I mean, of course, they bounced right back. So um, hopefully, you know, they will not be able to spread up to those colder areas. But with climate change, who knows? Yeah, definitely. So we've covered uh, a lot of ground talking about the pythons and the invasive species. But as we, we close out our conversation, you know, what's what's one thing that you want our listeners to walk away with when thinking about this particular invasive species? Well, so I think that honestly, what I want people to know about invasive species is that the Burmese pythons are not the only invasive species. You know, they are the one that get the most attention. Of course, they 15, 16, 17, 18 foot snake is going to capture everybody's attention. Um, however, invasive species come in all sorts of different shapes and sizes. And here in South Florida, we battle a lot of different invasive plants, plants like Brazilian pepper, um, Malaleuca, Australian pine. And wherever people are listening from, they have invasive species in their area and they might not even be aware of it because, you know, we tend to focus on those large animals like pythons. So I think it's really important that people understand that Invasive species are a really big problem, even if it's not a great big snake. And by being aware of the species around us, by being aware of ways that we can report that, um, you can have an impact and help prevent the spread of invasive species. 
Well, I want to thank you so much for speaking with us. I know that I've uh, learned a lot, even as a, a Florida native who follows this problem. And so, yeah, I just want to say thank you. And to all our listeners out there, if you do find a python when visiting South Florida parks, please call one eight eight eight. I've got one. Thank you so much, Dylan. Thank you. The North Cascades Institute has a large portfolio. It's an environmental learning center, training center, conference center, and leadership center, all set in the splendor of the North Cascades National Park Complex. Learn more at ncascades.org. The Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation is the primary nonprofit fundraising partner for the Blue Ridge Parkway. It is made up of people who have a deep love for this majestic road and want to ensure that its natural beauty and the experiences it offers endure for generations to come. Show your appreciation at brpfoundation.org. The Yosemite Conservancy inspires people to support projects and programs that preserve Yosemite National Park and enrich the visitor experience. The Conservancy funds transformative work throughout the park. The grant's donors support help protect diverse wildlife and plant species and restore the precious habitats they depend on. Grants also support improvements to miles of trails to ensure visitors can safely access Yosemite's wonders. Visit yosemiteconservancy.org to find more inspiration. It's hard to argue that Acadia, the Blue Ridge Parkway, the Great Smoky Mountains, and Shenandoah National Park don't represent the cream of what the national park system offers in Eastern America. There are a lot of great experiences in these top East Coast national parks, but for the truly discriminating explorer, we reached out to the friends groups for these parks about some awesome best-kept secret suggestions they had for visitors. With summer really just beginning and the entire autumn season to follow, here are some great visitor ideas from your friends, the essential friends of some of the East's best national parks. Heading to Acadia National Park? Leave the crowds and head to Isle of Haute, a tiny 12.7 square mile island south of Mount Desert Island that showcases the peaceful, remote side of Acadia. Here you'll find a five-site campground where you can end a day of hiking through northern forests, exploring cobblestone beaches, or kayaking. Bring your bike, there are no car ferries, and pedal to Duck Harbor, Eastern Head, and Western Head. If you do stay on Mount Desert Island, a visit to Acadia wouldn't be complete without a brunch of jam-smeared popovers and tea at the Jordan Pond House. Or skip brunch and plan on a lobster dinner. Build your appetite by cruising the vehicle-free carriage roads on bikes or hiking boots with stops in the art galleries in the villages of Seal Harbor and Northeast Harbor. A stroll through the park's wild gardens of Acadia at Sordemont Spring will familiarize you with some of the more than 850 plant species found in Acadia. Talk about getting away from it all. The vast realm of the southern Appalachians is an enigma to many, but the Blue Ridge Parkway orients you to the region while simultaneously obscuring your regular reality with day-after-day immersion in relaxing scenery and historic insight. The ultimate travel tip? Travel the entire 460-mile-long parkway from end to end. Give it a week. Get out of your car and hike some trails. See interpreters planting long-farmed fields. 
Watch grain being ground in a gristmill. Pause to hear the soul-stirring multicultural sounds of America's roots music. Bring your children and grandchildren, attend ranger-led programs, and hike on a track trail. Hop off the road and marvel at the different resort regions along the way, including hip travel spots like Asheville and Boone in North Carolina. Stay in nationally significant accommodations. Great dining, even wineries, will inspire toasts to growing refinement in Appalachia. At Great Smoky Mountains National Park, which straddles the Tennessee-North Carolina border at the southern tip of the Blue Ridge Parkway, visit the truly quiet side of the Smokies with a peaceful drive from Gatlinburg to Big and Little Cataloochee Valleys, two idyllic settings that retain vestiges of their homesteaded days. From Gatlinburg, take Tennessee 73 towards the Cosby Campground and then jump on Tennessee 32. This narrow, tree-lined gravel route forces you to relax and enjoy the scenery while leading you from Tennessee into North Carolina without the hectic pace of an interstate. Both of these beautiful valleys once were thriving settlements. Big Cataloochee was one of the largest and most prosperous settlements in the area now occupied by the National Park. Back in 1910, some 1,200 people lived in this lovely mountain valley framed by mountains climbing to 6,000 feet. Most made their living by farming, including commercial apple growing. But an early tourism industry developed in Cataloochee, with some families boarding fishermen and other tourists who wished to vacation in the mountains. Today, you'll see two churches and several homes and outbuildings that are left in the valleys. The setting is a great place for picnics or wedding a line, and in fall, this is the place to see the park's elk. From Great Smoky, head back north to Virginia and the Shenandoah National Park. There, you can spend a night in the backcountry, but not in a tent. Not unless you want, of course. The Potomac Appalachian Trail Club operates a good number of primitive cabins in and near the park that you can rent. Now, don't expect luxury accommodations, but the outdoor aficionado who settles into these historic structures will have a truly unique hike-in cabin experience. The cabins are popular, but with advanced planning, you can spend a rustic week not too far from your car. You'll need to carry in your own provisions to the rustic huts, of course, use an outhouse, and bring your water from a nearby stream but many of the walks aren't lengthy. Some are just a few tenths of a mile away from your parked car. The stone hut of Range View Cabin has been open since 1933 and is less than a mile from parking. Pocosin Cabin is just two tenths of a mile from your car. That makes it easy to resupply yourself with great food and even some luxuries. Some PATC cabins were built by the Civilian Conservation Corps or were even the homes of early settlers. A stay in a PATC cabin gives you the chance to really see how early residents of the area lived before Shenandoah was established, and their great preparation for a gourmet meal or overnight stay at Skyline Lodge when you hike back out. To look into a cabin stay, visit the Potomac Appalachian Trail Club at www.patc.net. Now, not everyone will find their way to these less-sampled experiences in great East Coast National Parks, but you might. And when you're done, you can thank your friends. Friends of Acadia, the Blue Ridge Parkway Foundation, Friends of Great Smoky Mountains, and the Shenandoah National Park Trust.
Dry Tortugas National Park, 70 miles from Key West, just very well might be the most remote national park in the lower 48. But when you arrive, you're surrounded by crystalline waters for snorkeling, kayaking, and relaxing on pristine beaches. There are sunken wrecks to explore, coral reefs swarming with colorful marine life, and history in the brick walls of a Civil War era fort. The Yankee Freedom 3, departing from Key West, can get you there in a little more than two hours. Visit them at drytortugas.com. Washington State is graced with three spectacular national parks, each different and special in their own unique ways. As the official nonprofit partner and the only philanthropic organization dedicated exclusively to supporting these parks through charitable contributions, Washington's National Park Fund has a mission to deepen the public's love for, understanding of, and experiences in Mount Rainier, North Cascades, and Olympic National Parks. Share your passion for these parks at WNPF.org. When did we start to hike as a form of enjoyment as opposed to simply going from point A to point B? What is the future of the activity? Those are Jeffrey Duran's bookends to his book, Ramble On, A History of Hiking. In between those bookends, Duran treats us to the evolution of the activity, explains what we get out of walking over mountains and through forests, and details the motivations behind the creation of hiking clubs. Hiking might seem rather bland as a topic to build a book around, but just as Terrence Young did in 2017 with his book, Heading Out, A History of American Camping, Duran's research brings to light some surprising hiking trivia. Most Americans with an interest in the outdoors know of Henry David Thoreau and his belief that, an early morning walk is a blessing for the whole day. But how many realize that 175 years before Thoreau was born in Concord, Massachusetts, that Darby Field became the first Euro-American to take a hike with the purpose of reaching the summit of Mount Washington in today's New Hampshire, a pinnacle that Thoreau didn't reach until 1839? Did you know that Earl Schaefer, the first person to hike the Appalachian Trail end-to-end without breaking up his walk, took to the trail not so much because he liked to hike, but because, after the loss of a childhood friend at the World War II Battle of Iwo Jima, he was determined to, as he put it, walk the army out of my system, both mentally and physically. Duran also points out that the first hiking clubs in the United States were formed in the 1850s, and that by 1920, there were at least 75 hiking clubs in the New York metropolitan area alone. And, very likely, most of us had no idea that in June 1907, the Mountaineers Club in Seattle urged its members not to take firearms with them on the club's annual outing into the Olympic Mountains because, quote, there is no game that can be killed at this season, and the promiscuous use of firearms during the outing cannot help but be a menace to other members of the party. But Ramble On is more than a book of hiking trivia, though it is chock full of that. Rather, it can be viewed as a vehicle for taking measure of where hiking got its start, why we hike, and what the future of the activity might look like as we crowd the outdoors. Those who might question whether there's a crowding problem need only to take to the Appalachian Trail during the summer months or set out to hike the Mist Trail in Yosemite National Park in July or August or try to bag a permit to hike the Wonderland Trail at Mount Rainier National Park during those months. 
a 21st century problem I had no awareness of until I picked up this book is the use of bots to find and select the best campsites along the trails. The bots, Duran says, are able to find and book a reservation for a backcountry campsite before a human ever has a chance to find them through their own research. And while some national parks have tried to tackle the crowding issue in part by implementing shuttle systems to alleviate overcrowded trailheads, that solution has created other problems. While the shuttle system may have helped with congestion along the Going to the Sun Road in Glacier National Park, it appears that it might be responsible for an increase in hiker traffic, points out Duran. In 1988, roughly 30,000 people hiked the Avalanche Lake Trail on the west side of the park. By 2011, that number had tripled, despite overall park visitation remaining flat during that time period. The Highline Loop, which takes hikers from Logan Pass to the Loop, saw hiker traffic explode from just 1,800 hikers to more than 40,000 during that same period, the author points out. These are problems, problems that are not offset entirely, or perhaps not at all, by getting people out into the fresh air and wondrous landscapes. Trails are being worn out. Self-entitlement and perhaps even arrogance seem to be playing out in bad behavior by some hikers, and the solitude that many seek isn't always available. Raise your hand if you've ever encountered another hiker with earplugs deployed, and yet still the volume seems turned close to, if not at, the highest setting, and so you hear them before they've rounded that bend that you're approaching. Or, if you've set out to spend the night at a backcountry shelter, only to arrive and find not only that the shelter is full, but also that tents have sprouted up in spots where they shouldn't have been laid down at all. Some solutions are coming, writes Duran, such as the thought by Zion National Park staff to require reservations for some of the park's most popular hikes during the busy season. Another, he suggests, would be to establish more national parks to spread out hikers into areas that, while blessed with equally magnificent settings, don't draw the traffic that a quote-unquote national park does. No doubt, there remain many trails where you'll find solitude if you want to walk at least 30 minutes from the trailhead. But better we come to terms with the growing problem and find sound solutions before we have to react to established problems. While Ramble On certainly will help with your knowledge of hiking trivia, it also should carry a warning of what we just might stumble into. That's our show for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. As always, if you have comments, you can reach us at news at nationalparkstraveler.org. And if you have suggestions for topics or guests for future shows, you also can reach us at news at nationalparkstraveler.org with those ideas. For The Traveler, this is Kurt Repencheck. See you in the parks. The composers and musicians at Orange Tree Productions have created a unique collection known as the National Park Series that has grown to include more than 30 CD titles. Composed against the backdrop of a park's sounds of nature, these musical scores will connect you with these beautiful places and take you there, at least in your mind. This collection is the number one selling National Park audio series in the world and provides the background music for National Park's Travelers podcast. Visit them at orangetreeproductions.com.
National Parks Traveler is a 501c3 nonprofit media organization that provides daily editorial coverage of national parks and protected areas. Traveler's coverage is made possible by reader and listener donations. Visit us at nationalparkstraveler.org.